You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Next on Washington Post Live. This is where we take a closer look at up and coming change makers. We're looking at rising stars who have caught our eye from Capitol Hill to the film and TV industry and everywhere in between. I'm Nicole Dunka and I'm an investigative reporter at the Washington Post. Before she was stealing scenes on HBO's The Sex Lives of College Girls, Lauren Lolo Spencer was making waves on YouTube with videos about how to live her best life with ALS. Um, she's, here to she's here today to talk about being a disability lifestyle influencer and encouraging others to access your drive and enjoy the ride. Lolo, welcome to Washington Post Live and thank you for talking with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation. <laughs> Thanks. Before we get going, I'd like to give a visual description of myself. I am a brown-skinned Filipino-American woman, and I'm wearing a black turtleneck, and I have long black hair. Lolo, would you please give a visual description of yourself before we get started? Yes. So I am a brown-skinned Black woman uh, with red and black braids, gold hoops, and a gold necklace with an orange and black striped sweater. And I am loving the hoops. So let's get started. I <laughs> wanted to start off by quoting you, actually. Uh, you once said, I just made a decision that I was going to live my life to the fullest. ALS was not going to be my story. Can you tell us a little bit about what sparked your mentality with that? Yeah. it definitely was something when I had first learned about what my diagnosis was and learning more about it. There was just something instinctively inside of me. And sometimes it sounds a little weird or whatever, but there was something intuitively inside of me that was like, whatever they're saying is supposed to happen based on the statistics of what this diagnosis is, I just knew wasn't gonna be my story. I just didn't accept it. It wasn't anything I wanted to accept. And truly inside, it didn't feel like it was my truth. So I just made that decision. I was like, yeah, that's not happening to me. <laughs> Yeah, I, you have a new book coming out. It's called Access Your Drive and Enjoy the Ride. And in it, you say, my goal is not to inspire anyone. I'm just going to share my truth, a different perspective on something that's been misrepresented for so long. So what can readers expect to learn about you and your journey in this new book? I think what people can expect is to know that whatever people's ideas of what disability lifestyle looked like or what it meant to live with a disability is going to be completely debunked. I mean, there are moments that I'm sharing from my personal life that, of course, my disability plays a major role in it. But I think a lot of the times people have these assumptions about oh, to live with a disability, you get bullied in school or, you know, people take advantage of you in negative ways. And that honestly was not my experience. You know, I definitely have my challenges, which I explain in the book what those were, but ultimately it was about how having a disability gave me the leverage to take control of my life and make decisions that were always with my best interest at heart. 
Yeah, you talk a lot about that on your YouTube channel, Sitting Pretty, um, where you talk about the real deal on life with the disability. And now also you have a lot of Instagram followers and some of your videos have been really great in terms of capturing the humor of living with a disability. And we actually have a video um, for one of those. So let's take a look here. Here we go again! <laughs> I did, I, I laughed out loud when I saw that one. <laughs> and so can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to get across in this video? In the past, you've talked a lot about not wanting to be inspiration porn. Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to say in a video like that? Absolutely. You know, again, because of social conditioning over time, you know, people have always used the lives of people with disabilities as their inspiration that because I don't have a disability, I should be grateful that I don't, right? Like people with disabilities always seem to be the poster child of what life looks like when life is worse. And for me, I'm just trying to debunk that by sharing that, no, actually life with a disability can be really fun. It's really cool. And I'm not here to be your before picture per se, right? Where, you know, they always have like the before and afters of like how life can get better. Like, I'm not here for that. I am existing as a human. I have the right to be human. I have the right to make mistakes. I have the right to do things right, right? Like it's always that. So I'm not here. And I don't think any person with a disability should ever feel the pressure of inspiring others. Because inherently what that is saying is they view our lives as worse. So we should be inspired at the fact that even though their life is worse than mine, they're still finding a way to make it great for them when it's like, no, actually, my life is probably 10 times better than yours. <laughs> I, I guarantee that's true for, for you. <laughs> and so I want to pivot to your career. You're both a model and an actress in addition to everything you do with activism and on your YouTube channel. Um, can you talk a little bit about that path? I've heard you talk about almost falling into some of these careers by accident. Yes. And honestly, that's what happened and i talk a lot about those moments in the book that essentially when you are on the path of your purpose or once you recognize you're doing something that you really love that you feel like you're being called to do all sorts of opportunities start to open up for you i don't know how when and where how this happens it's just like this intuitive universal thing and so for me it was about taking advantage of the opportunities in order to use it as a vessel for my greater purpose and so when all of these opportunities to act to model public speaking came about it was really more so about okay this opportunity is here it's not compromising compromising my moral compass 
there's nothing wrong with what is happening with this opportunity. This is something worth trying because I know that if I show up in this space and through this opportunity, what it could mean for others is much greater than maybe my own fear or insecurity behind whether or not I feel like I'm a good enough model or actress. So that's more so what all of those opportunities were about. And it really just boiled down to making those decisions. And one of those opportunities uh, is playing Jocelyn on HBO's The Sex Life, of, Sex Life of College Girls. And she's a very brash, confident, sex-positive woman. You've described her as a college version of yourself. I mean, yes. what does it mean for people to be able to see a sex-positive Black woman with a disability on uh, such a popular TV show? Oh my gosh, it means everything to me. I mean, the amount of people that come up to me in person, di disability or not, they're like, oh my gosh, I love Jocelyn. I want her to be my friend in real life. Like, it's a real thing. And that's the kind of impact with anything that I do that I want to be able to have. Because the thing that's so beautiful about Jocelyn is as they're watching her on screen, they're seeing her for her personality. They're seeing her for who she is as a person. The wheelchair is kind of sort of just there. That's just like how she moves around. So the fact that people are falling in love with her because of who she is as a character is absolutely incredible. And that is the kind of representation you want to have when you are creating content as big as a TV show or film or even in advertising. It's really about focusing on the person's humanity first. And then, you know, disability can be the cute cherry on top. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. And I mean, growing up, did you feel like you saw yourself represented in the media when you watched TV, when you watched films? No, not at all. I mean, I was able to relate to young black girls that were on TV, like, you know, Raven Simone and, and, you know, those icons at the time. But as far as having a specific disability, no, I, I definitely did not see that at all. And, and that's what's important, right, about, you know, my presence right now and what I want to continue to do throughout my career is be that visual representation that it's possible that it exists and that something and characters can be created for who they are and not just their disability. Because again, it's one of those things where it's like people with disabilities are human first. People, underline, italicize, bold people with disabilities. <laughs> are here and we deserve to live the life that we desire as well. Yeah, I mean, in the YouTube space, you are able to cultivate a community that attracted a lot of people who may have had disabilities. What was it like going from an audience like that to navigating an industry like film, uh, an industry like TV, which for a long time has been not representative? of the world that we see. What was that like? You know, luckily I've been really blessed that with all the opportunities that I've had for film and TV, that the crew, the writers, directors, everyone 
was on board with wanting to make sure that I was most comfortable and that I had all of my accessibility needs met. So there is a lot of conversations that have to happen before getting started on a production. And thankfully, you know, I've had a crew and writers and directors that were always open-minded to my suggestions and ideas around making sure the humanity of my characters were always there. And then for me, being on set, making sure that I was always comfortable, that I felt like talent, which is a big thing too, um, and not feeling like I'm being othered on set still, even though I'm here as talent, just like anybody else in my cast. So that's what was really important. And then for me, it does feel like all of the people who have watched me since YouTube who are continuing to follow me on social media, it's my responsibility to show up in those ways, even in the ways that they may not get the opportunity to see out in public, but still being able to advocate and share that information with others, empower people in this industry. So that way, more and more people can get cast in these roles and we can have a plethora of talent with disabilities in the industry. Right. And I'd love to go back to modeling. I know you were a big part of a campaign um, from Tommy Hilfiger about adaptive fashion. Can you tell us a little bit about what adaptive fashion is and what that means for brands becoming more inclusive? Essentially, adaptive fashion is taking pieces of clothing that everyone wears, but having minor adaptive features to make it easier for people with varying disabilities to be able to dress with independence and dignity, right? So for instance, because I'm a competing person. Oops, we just love it so much. <laughs> we love it. I know, we're, we're just gonna play it every other minute. <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. No, but so essentially because I am a seated wheelchair user, something that would be uh, adaptive for me is when the pants are higher in the back than they are in the front. Because when I'm seated in my chair, the traditional pants would, you know, let my crack show a little bit. And I'm not comfortable with that. Nobody wants that, right? So the pants are distinctively sewn that way, or there's things like magnetic closures. So again, for instance, because of my dexterity and my love for fake nails, I, it's really hard to use small buttons. So if I were to have a dress shirt, it would be really hard to do it on my own. But having magnetic closures, the shirt can open and close very easily, but still look like on the outside as if the shirt was actually buttoned up. Oh, wow. Well, thank you yeah. so much for explaining that. I mean, and you've spoken also about the challenges with employment when you're a person with a disability. Can you talk a little bit about why people might be hesitant to, you know, say that they have one or go on the record about having one? Yeah, it's actually a really real issue, you know, because again, with society's brainwashing of what they believe life with a disability is like. It has never been from a space of empowerment or um, support, right? So a lot of the times with people with disabilities, if we go in and say, hey, I need 
an ergonomic chair in order to relieve some of the chronic pain that may happen in my legs from sitting down in the wrong chair too long, right? Or if there's a certain desk that needs to be elevated, the fear that comes with that is now my employer is going to think that they need to spend more money just in order to hire me. The fear is people will assume that I can't do my job because I may have to go to the doctors more frequently than maybe the average employee. And so a lot of the times people don't like to share that they have these disabilities in fear that they may be looked at as not being capable of doing their job or looked at as a hindrance or a burden uh, for their employer when really all we're trying to do is make a living for ourselves because we want to live independently too. We want to have our own place. We want to be able to shop. We want to be able to travel. We want to be able to have the same luxuries as anybody else. But when employers are constantly um, getting in the way of people with disabilities being able to be respected as employees and making the minor adjustments, most of the time they're very minor adjustments in order to employ a candidate that can do the job just as well as anybody else, it turns into a whole hodgepodge of negativity that just does not work or serve anybody. So it does create a lot of fear around it. I mean, even when I was working, I, I talk about this in the book, you know, I was traveling on the bus in my wheelchair to and from the office, rain or not. Like, and I was going through puddles, I was damaging my chair just in order to get to the office because I was so afraid to let my employers know I can't make it into the office today because of the rain and I don't have the ability to drive. So it, there's a lot of fear that comes around that. That's usually called internalized ableism. And, you know, it's a real issue. So I just hope that employers and companies recognize that there are a lot of talented people with disabilities who have great skill sets who are incredibly smart and incredibly capable of doing a multitude of jobs. And we just want the same financial independence that anybody else would be able to get because they want to work as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, you've also said in the past, kind of related to what you're saying, you like to see your disability as an honor, not a burden. And so for anyone who does have a disability and is watching this kind of struggling to find that within themselves, do you have any messages to them? You know, honestly, I would say understand that getting to that place is a journey. It's an everyday journey. I still have my moments today where I, I, I'm second guessing myself. My insecurities will rear its ugly head and, and show up. So understand that it is a journey constantly, but taking the necessary steps every day to find creative ways to build your confidence, build your self-love, build your self-worth is imperative. Be mindful of the environments that you're in. Be mindful of the people that are also around you because all of those do play a factor in how we feel about ourselves. And if for whatever reason you don't have the opportunity to really um, 
find maybe the social group that you're looking for, tap into social media and the internet. There are so many incredible disabled YouTubers who give incredible advice on how to find self-love and self-worth with a disability. But be patient with yourself, give yourself grace, and just know that it's an everyday process. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Thank you so much. That's such an important message. And that is all the time we have today. But thank you so much for joining us today, Lolo. It has been an honor to talk to you. Thank you so much. This was incredible. I appreciate it. Thanks. And so next, we're excited to have another edition of our next roundtable, where I join some of my colleagues uh, talking about the news of the day and what they're working on in the newsroom. Joining me today are Teddy Amenabar and Amanda Morris from the Post's Wellbeing team. Thank you so much for coming to join me today, both of you. Um, Amanda, do you want to start with a visual description of yourself? Yeah, so I am a white woman with long brown hair. I'm sitting in the office and I'm wearing a blue flowery shirt. And Teddy, if you could have one too, that'd be great. Yeah, I am a white man with short brown hair and glasses, and I am also in the newsroom right now. And so, Amanda, let's start with you. We just had that conversation with Lolo Spencer. Um, what's it mean to be uh, casting more disabled actors? What does this mean for the narrative of disabilities in the media and being able to represent them? Yeah, so actually it's been really exciting to see over the last couple of years, especially more and more disability representation in the media, in the news, that's obviously what I cover. And just throughout society, like before 1990, people with disabilities were very much still segregated. And then the ADA allowed us to better integrate but we're finally reaching a point now where it's not just that we're integrating into society, but we're being represented. And what that's doing is that having authentic representation is allowing us to tell our own stories and to tell them the way that we want to tell them in a way that humanizes us and in a way that can be not maybe inspiration, but validation for other people with disabilities who have for so long not seen themselves on screen. Yeah, thank you so much for your important work. I'm so glad we have your position in the newsroom. And I also want to talk a little bit about some of the stories you're working on right now. You're working on something about the relationship between COVID and POTS, which is a disorder that includes an increased heartbeat. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so a lot of the work that I've been doing recently focuses on how the pandemic is uh, causing more disability in the population and is really causing society to grapple more with what that means and how for a very long time the medical establishment maybe has not been fully prepared to uh, handle and deal with people with disabilities uh, the way that they should. And so what we're seeing post-COVID is that uh, there's a sharp rise in the number of people who are being diagnosed with POTS. This is a syndrome that mostly affected young women before the pandemic and is still mostly affecting women now. Um, but for a long time, women with this uh, syndrome 
which can cause a number of things. It's a disorder of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, they were ignored by the medical establishment or not believed by doctors. A lot of doctors would tell them they had anxiety or something. And it's only about two decades ago that we recognized POTS. And now we're seeing these repercussions of that because for a long time it didn't get funding and research and there's very few specialists who know how to treat it. But now we're seeing potentially millions of more people developing POTS. And so my story deals with kind of the fact that all of these new patients are struggling to get treatment and a lot of them are turning towards each other to get advice on how to handle this uh, because they, they have one or two year long wait list to see some of the doctors that know how to treat it. Oh, wow. And Teddy, you also have a story about some of the issues arising from the pandemic. There has been a rise in mental health and there have also been Fewer, there have not been enough therapists to really um, be able to be able to um, deal with as many people who are looking for therapy right now. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the rise of you know mental health um, illnesses during the pandemic and the signs of that you see in the U.S. right now? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, in the fall, I, I wrote an article about. Um, a recent survey that, that six in 10 psychologists say they don't have any openings for new patients. They're completely booked. Um, it just gets to the same high demand and the latest sign of this ongoing mental health crisis that has only been exasperated by the pandemic the past three years. Um, and then my colleague, Kellen on wellbeing, he's done a lot of great reporting around, uh, you know, addressing burnout uh, post pandemic and you know, last month, um, uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, resigned from office, um, you know, uh, basically citing you know, a, a burnout in, in a role. And um, and it's it's kind of the, the latest example of a number of um, celebrities, actors, athletes who have spoken publicly about uh, needing to step away in whatever form, like Tom Holland took a break from Instagram, um, uh, and, and Naomi Osaki uh, took a took a break from tennis last year and is st still on that break. Um, uh, just this like larger conversation that we're seeing nowadays in uh, in public life about burnout and mental health and, and taking the time you need to to uh, step away from the grind. Yeah, and relatedly, I'm sure you've seen this on TikTok, there are therapists who are talking about mental illness on TikTok, talking about how to self-diagnose yourself. Uh, Amanda, can you talk a little bit about the dangers behind that and what happens when people are using TikTok instead of going to a therapist or another mental health specialist? Yeah, um, so it's interesting. I did a, a story in the fall about brown noise, which it sounds like, um, it's like white noise, but instead of being very high pitched, it sounds more like an airplane engine or a, a low rumble of thunder. And the whole reason I came across this story was that I was on TikTok and all these people were posting, you know, this clip of brown noise playing and they were saying, you know, is this soothing you? Is this helping to calm you down? If so, you may have ADHD. Um, and then some people were posting it more like, I have diagnosed ADHD and this helps me. And in that situation, it's a little bit more innocuous because 
listening to a certain sound is not necessarily come with any medical or health risk. Um, so those people sharing that advice was just friendly advice between patients, which has been a long time like tradition in patient communities to share advice. And that's an important component of being a patient for somebody with a disability. But at the same time, um, we are seeing like a sharp rise in ADHD diagnosis and all over TikTok, you'll see all these videos that say, if you do this, this, and that, you might have ADHD. And um, I think it, it just gets a little bit tricky sometimes because not everybody on TikTok or social media is a professional and not everybody's going to have access to professionals. So people might be turning to social media for health advice when they really should be trying to figure out how to see a doctor or something. And what we really need is better access to that, uh, to, to healthcare and things for people with disabilities and mental health issues, which, you know, Teddy has been covering and Teddy um, has covered a lot of different trends around social media and misinformation as well. Yeah, and to either of you, I mean, is there any is there any sign that this was is going to get better? Is there going to be more capacity um, with therapists? How do you see that trend playing out in the future? I mean, at, at least from my reporting, I I wouldn't be able to say that that's the case at all. Um, I I think that. From everything I've seen and the people I've spoken with, um, the problems we see today about, um, you know, the inability to get an appointment or get a prescription or a comparable prescription, even if you can't even get exactly what you're looking for, um, all of those have been going on for for months, if not for at least the past year. Um, so, I guess my short answer is I don't I don't think so from what I know. And, but do you have any practical advice for people who are struggling to get mental health support? What kind of things should they be doing so that they can get some of that support? Um, you, you want to jump in? Yeah, I just didn't want to speak twice. I, I mean, you know, there are more um, services, telehealth services, online services to kind of scale therapy um, as a way to approach mental health concerns specifically um, and I think that will only continue to become more of an option for people who can't um, pay privately or pay through their insurance to see somebody in person and um, I, but the tough thing is that doesn't get to the 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 problems with you know somebody who's looking for a prescription Adderall or something you know, comparable to that. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have too many practical answers. I have a, another quick suggestion here, which is um, the one thing patient communities and people who have been diagnosed with certain things, uh, when they make Facebook groups and support groups, it can be really helpful for is actually suggesting where to look for help. Um, that's one of the strongest things I've seen even in reporting my story about POTS post-COVID. A lot of POTS patients, you know, it can take them up to five years to get diagnosed uh, because it takes them so long to find somebody who knows what's going on and to get in to see a specialist, but they actually have a better time getting diagnosed and getting the right treatments when they rely on each other and they give each other advice about, you know, try this doctor, try that doctor. So um, I think even in the sphere of mental health, like finding other people with uh, similar conditions to yours and asking them for advice on, you know, where did they find help? Where did they find treatment? 
uh, it is really useful and it's a useful tool as long as they're not acting as if they are a doctor and prescribing you a treatment. But if they're telling you where you can find help, that's a helpful uh, resource there. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking about the work that you're doing at The Post right now, and it's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.